Welcome to episode 26 of Celluloid Junkies. I'm here with my cockadoodie co-host Luke Kane. Hello. Put on your Liberace records because this bitchly month we're looking at one big bastard of a thriller, Rob Reiner's Christing 1990 Dirty Bird Misery. Jesus Christ, that was really good. I got them all in there. <laughs> you almost died. You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs and the fibula in the right leg is fractured too. And as soon as the roads open, I'll take you to a hospital. In the meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. There is nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'm your number one fan. My name is Annie Wilkes. I think one of my clients, Paul Sheldon, might be in some kind of trouble. You mean Paul Sheldon, the writer? Everybody sure likes those misery books. They had it at the store, Paul. They said he checked out last Tuesday. Isn't that a little strange? I guess it was kind of a miracle you finding me. In a way, I was following you. You were following me? Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours, but the misery novels... You must be a good man. You could never have created such a wondrous, loving creature as Misery Chastain. Very kind. The presumption must now be that Paul Sheldon is dead. You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Misery spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! You don't think he's dead, do you? And don't even think about anybody coming for you. Because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. I know you've been out. Is this what you're looking for? Eventually, you'll come to accept the idea of being here. Annie, whatever you think I'm not doing, please don't do it. Annie, for God's sake. Shh, darling. Trust me. God's sake. It's for the best. God, I love you. It's September of 1984, and the first film of actor-turned-director Rob Reiner, best known for his role in American sitcom All in the Family, has been a mild success. The ahead-of-its-time mockumentary This Is Spinal Tap, produced on a $2 million budget, turns a profit for Embassy Pictures and over the coming years will turn into a cult favourite. Embassy are working on getting a new script off the ground, a short story called The Body, written by Stephen King. King is, at this point, a very successful writer of horror novels who's about to take off in a big way. Already there are several film adaptations of his work by notable Hollywood elites, Brian De Palma's Carrie, for instance, and Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, Toby Hooper's miniseries of Salem's Lot, Louis Teague's Cujo, David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone, John Carpenter's Christine and an adaptation of Firestarter have also all turned a profit, demonstrating that King's work is easily saleable. His digestible combination of horror, thriller and the supernatural fits perfectly into the 1980s landscape. Adrian Lyne, director of the box office smash Flashdance, has just finished making his new film Nine and a Half Weeks and is attached to direct The Body. 
But he wants some time off and his holiday conflicts with an upcoming sale of Embassy Pictures who want to get the film made before it gets cancelled. Reiner is brought on to direct and the film, featuring Richard Dreyfus in little more than a voiceover as its only star, lands into cinemas in August of 1986. It's a massive success, spending three weeks atop the box office, 15 of its first 16 weeks in the top 10, and garnering a $52.3 million return on its $8 million budget. One month after the release of Stand By Me, King's new novel, the 1,138-page It, a book that has taken five years to write, is released in an initial print run of one million copies, double the number of any of his previous works. Nine months later, his next book, Misery, is released with the same initial print run. It spends 12 weeks atop the New York Times best-selling fiction list throughout the winter of 1986, and Misery spends seven weeks atop that same list the following summer. King, if he wasn't already, is now undoubtedly the biggest draw card in fiction writing. Until this point, the majority of King's work has been optioned for a film adaptation prior to its release. Producer Andrew Scheinman, who'd worked with Reiner on Stand By Me, is surprised to find that no such deal exists for Misery, which he picks up in an airport bookstore and reads on a flight. King would later say that the book was a personal story, and he was hesitant to see it adapted for the screen, but was swayed when Scheinman approached with the idea that Reiner would direct. King had loved Stand By Me, another story he felt was personal, and agreed as long as Reiner helmed the project. Timing couldn't have been better. With the success of Stand By Me and his next two projects, fantasy film The Princess Bride and romantic comedy When Harry Met Sally, Reiner was now one of the industry's most sought-after directors. Scheinman and Reiner turned to Academy Award-winning screenwriter William Goldman, who'd penned The Princess Bride, to adapt the novel. Goldman was best known for his Oscar-winning screenplays for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and All the President's Men, as well as The Stepford Wives and Marathon Man. He was in a funk, however. His latest few scripts hadn't been produced, and he'd instead turned to writing books, releasing the best-selling Adventures in the Screen Trade in 1983 and several fiction novels throughout the early 1980s. That most of the principal crew from Stand By Me and The Princess Bride returned for misery made the project run smoothly. In addition to Scheinman, Reiner and Goldman, editor Robert Layton also came on board, as did several other producers and the entire casting department. Speaking of casting... Goldman was the one who put forward the name Kathy Bates, who was an accomplished stage actress, but had only been a supporting actress throughout her two-decade screen career to this point. She was our first and only choice, states Reiner on the film's DVD audio commentary. James Kahn was not the first and only choice, though. Among those said to have turned down the film's male lead role include Dreyfus, William Hurt, Warren Beatty and even Robert Redford. Michael Douglas, Kevin Kline, Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino and Gene Hackman are others that were approached. The role, lying in bed being tormented by a crazy nurse, was not the most appealing to Hollywood's glamour men. Only Beatty got close and he even worked with the filmmakers on strengthening the character of Paul Sheldon before declining the role to continue work on his third directorial effort, Dick Tracy. James Kahn, who'd retired from acting citing burnout in 1982, had recently returned to the craft and was about to head to Italy to make an action film when he heard that Reiner and co were seeking a leading man. In the end, he ended up being the perfect fit for the job. Shooting took place in Nevada, California and New York from February to May of 1990 with a budget of approximately $20 million and the film was released into cinemas on November 30th of that year. It debuted at number two behind box office behemoth Home Alone 
and grossed over $60 million, finishing in the top 20 films for the year. This would remain the biggest box office for a King adaptation until it was overtaken by The Green Mile in 1999, and to this day it remains in fourth place on such a list, behind 2017's It and 2007's 1408. So Luke, tell me what you think of Misery. When did you first see it? Well, I first saw it when I was, I would say, like 14 or 15. And I had read the book first and I was really impatient with the book. I just didn't feel like it moved fast enough for my 15-year-old brain. I was like uh, annoyed by all of the internal monologues. I felt like nothing happened in the story. And I was really into Stephen King and I was into his plotting and Misery just felt like, such an aberration from the regular King novel. And I quickly saw the film after that and absolutely loved the film and wore the shit out of my VHS copy of that movie. Annie Wilkes became a very kind of looming figure in my cinematic landscape. I just loved her in it. Because I've watched it to death, the impact of the movie has dulled for me quite a bit. Uh, But... I still think it's a really good film, and I think it's probably more interesting to me now, less as a suspense film and more as a kind of commentary on fan culture and the creative process and sort of representationally I'm interested in the movie. But I don't really find it very suspenseful anymore. I've just seen it too much, and the images are are burned in my brain. So it's going to be a little bit tricky for me to talk about this film objectively, I think. I hear that um, your mother hates this film. She does. Why? She's scared to death of... Annie Wilkes, she finds her too mental, is her terminology. It's very PC. But she, yeah, she doesn't like it. It makes her feel icky. A lot of people are scared of um, things in which they see parts of themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. There was that time she hobbled me. (laughs) I'm okay now. Fully recovered, though. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like you. I've loved this movie for a long time. I think it was probably one of the original psychological thrillers that I ever saw. How old were you? Uh, I can't remember exactly, but it would have been maybe mid-90s because I remember I had wanted to see Dolores Claiborne soon after it was released because it was Stephen King and it had Kathy Bates in it. And that came out in 95, so it might have hit video stores in 96 here. So, yeah, I probably would have been about 13 or 14 when I saw it. I think I was probably at an entirely inappropriate age to kind of gel with Stephen King when I did but I did. Doesn't everyone get into him at an inappropriate age? Yeah I think so because his themes are remarkably adult when you look at them. Well he was my first adult novelist and I distinctly remember going to the because I borrowed all of his books from my school library but I would have to go to the high school library to get them but my librarian she was so just supportive of the fact that I wanted to read that she would just let me check out all of these grotesque books and she ordered heaps in for me I'd be like I want Cujo and then four weeks later it would be in the library she was lovely her name was Mrs Patience oh she had a lot of it (laughs) that's a perfect name for a librarian she was so great Mine was called Mrs. M's. Mrs. M's, if you're listening. (laughs) Shout out. Uh, I still believe that this is uh, one of the better examples of a psychological thriller, especially from that time when so many of them were being made. And then I 
remember going to the video store and wanting to have the same experience that I had with Misery. And so I would just, every psychological thriller that came out. But of course, they never quite met up with Misery. Because Misery is such a unique psychological thriller because it really does have some elements of very stark horror, like body horror and special effects Mm -hmm. that most psychological thrillers don't have. They don't quite tip over into horror, whereas Misery does a few times. It was such a rich period for that genre. There was uh, not only Misery, a few years before that Fatal Attraction had garnered so uh, so much praise and Academy Award nominations, including, I think, one for Best Picture. And then that same year, there was Sleeping with the Enemy and Pacific Heights. Mm. And within the few years after that, there was stuff like uh, Copycat and Disclosure. and The Good Son and Sleeping with the Enemy. Yeah. 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 Did you just say that one? I did say Sleeping with the Enemy, yeah. <laughs> when I was growing up, I used to go with my uh, parents and particularly my mum. She's a big reader to a lot of secondhand bookstores and there was one in Elizabeth South and I don't know why we trekked all the way down there but it had this awesome selection of Stephen King novels and uh, I worked my way through a lot of those books when I was, as I say, probably an entirely too inappropriate age. I have a funny story. There's there's one time when I was doing... Remember you used to get up at school and do show and tell? Mm -hmm. And so I was reading... A Stephen King novel at the time and it was Cujo and I was in grade five which for people in Australia means you're probably about 11 years old but I decided I was going to get up there and show and tell and I read this gruesome pack- passage from Cujo out to the entire class <laughs> and I'm still to this day surprised that I wasn't expelled or sent to an asylum or something but I've always had this love for Stephen King's writing and he is one of those easy people to get into but also horror and all kinds of dark themes and that all kind of manifested during my otherwise very happy childhood. So I guess I was able to, because of my childhood, distance myself from the themes in these books and so they were relatively easy to absorb. Uh, But stories like this have always kind of excited me. So there was a time where when I first got into Stephen King, uh, I one Christmas my mum took me to a bookstore and she said, you can get eight. Eight? So I picked eight books and then she put them were all they in all this, Stephen King? They were all Stephen King. And she put them all in this in this box and then she wrapped it up and it sat under the tree and I had to wait two months to open it and have them all. And I just remember being apoplectic waiting for these books to get into my grasp so I could start reading them. Do you remember any from that time, from that particular shopping trip that would leave an impact on you? Any of the books? I absolutely loved The Dark Half and Pet Cemetery, and I had vivid memories of reading them and just being obsessed with them. I also remember I went on a trip to Melbourne to meet, my, to meet a bunch of my family, and for some reason it was a bit of a tough trip, and I just remember spending the whole time reading The Green Mile. I think it, the word family was enough to indicate why <laughs> it was tough. Yeah. So, no, I mean, Stephen King was just a huge part of my childhood. Did you read The Green Mile as it came out? It was out no. every month. So, yeah, but it had been assembled by the point I got to it into, mm. an, into a novel, and I just read it as a novel. The Green Mile was released, I think the internet would have been around and in its infancy, so I, I never bothered looking it up. But I remember going to the, you know, going into department stores and seeing these big stands for the Green Mile each time they released a volume of the book before it was collected into a full book and thinking, wow, okay, this must be some kind of event. And it really was back then when books were released, they were events. Yeah. When major books like that. 
these days so much of that stuff goes on in your in the privacy of your own home because so many people just download them buy them through their kindle or you know order them online instead of visiting a bookstore which is you know one of the sad things about the current state of things it's great that you can do that but it also has impacts on ways that you've absorbed media in the past but also I think just readership numbers are down generally. It's a pastime that isn't as embraced as Do you think readership numbers are actually down? I don't know if there's... I think of novels, they are. I would think so, yeah, but I'm not sure of any concrete data for that. I think with millennials, you know, attention spans are decreasing and reading, committing to a novel... It takes an incredible amount of focus. And not only that, but there's so many different ways to gather entertainment and information. So, yeah, it probably is. Uh, Just before we go on, there's one scene in this movie that I just want to ask you about quickly. Okay. Uh, It's a scene where the sheriff's wife puts her hand on the sheriff's leg in the car while they're driving. Virginia. And uh, then she says, well, I'd rather be at home under the covers with the sheriff. I mean, don't you think that's out of place? It's such a weird scene to include in this film. Well, it's kind of poking fun at the idea of old people having sex. Hmm. And it feels a little dated. I don't know, in a weird way to me. Like, I just feel like that humour is kind of dated. Do you think that comes from... I mean, Rob Reiner had just had such massive success with When Harry Met Sally. And obviously the memorable line in that movie is, I'll have what she's having. I don't know if it's some kind of byproduct of that. I think it definitely speaks to Rainer's sensibilities as a director. He was in fresh territory with misery and the thriller genre, and you can definitely feel he's injected a lot of comedy in it. Some of the comedy is very broad, like that comedy, but most of the comedy, the one that you get from Kathy Bates in that room, is very abstract and kind of commingled with horror. So, yeah, I mean, I think that works because those two actors are great. Like Richard Farnsworth and um, his wife. Jessica Bust- Tandy. <laughs> Virginia and Buster. They're, they're really good. And particularly Buster is great. And also it gets you out of the room. It kind of is a little bit of a tension release, but it's also necessary. It does two things. It tells you what kind of town Annie Wilkes is from. You know, when he gets the call that's about, oh, well, if you put out, you know, a seed out the front of your shop, people are going to want to sit on it. So, okay, these are the kinds of issues that this town normally faces. And they're very small, very provincial, very kind of non-event type stuff. But also it shows that somebody is looking for pole. And, you know, so we need to know that there is somebody out there in the world who is trying to find out what happened to him. And taking it seriously, I guess. Mm. Whereas if you just stayed in that room, you'd be like, why hasn't somebody come yet? Yeah. You know, so it kind of it kind of shows you why. And throughout the book, one of the major differences is that uh, everything is from Paul's perspective and Paul's point of view. So, for instance, when in the movie you get to see them looking for the car, in the book he speculates that they're looking for the car and he hopes and then he plays out in his head all of these kind of scenarios where they find his car. Mm-hmm. And that's a major talking point throughout the book, less so in the movie. Yeah, and the character of Buster was a complete creation of William Goldman. Yeah. Yeah, wasn't in the book at all. I think it's a necessary Absolutely. addition. And, but we'll get into all of that. I mean, I was really surprised when doing research for this episode that there are as many adaptations of Stephen King books and stories that have been well-received. Because I always kind of had this impression that the majority of his stuff had not been kind of given a, a the correct kind of service when it had been transitioned to the screen. And he had a kind of predilection for allowing television movies of his books, which I always kind of frowned upon. 
I'm not sure why, because some of those are really good, really enjoyable. They just don't feel as artistic. But yeah, I mean, I I had in my head that pretty much everything was bad, but I was pleased to find out that for every needful things, there there is a carry. The other surprise is that so many of his adaptations aren't strictly horror. So you sometimes forget about them. Like, it's, it's pretty easy to forget that Shawshank is based on a Stephen King film or that even things that are horror but you don't necessarily equate with King, like 1408 or Secret Window, there are so many that you just don't think about. I mean, recently, Gerald's Game, that don't necessarily scream Stephen King on the surface. Yeah, there are a lot. I mean, by the time Misery had been made, there were arguably, I guess, three great adaptations that have stood the test of time and they'd be Carrie, The Shining and Stand By Me. And after Misery, in terms of the ones that have lasted, you're probably looking at The Shawshank Redemption and possibly The Green Mile, even though reviews uh, were somewhat mixed for that. But for the same level of filmmaking, that's the class we're looking at. And to be honest, it's pretty rare that any writer has that many books turned into really good films. So if anything, he's very lucky. Well, lucky, but also I think he just has an ingenious imagination. His stories are so vivid and unusual. Even Misery uh, or Cujo or Christine or Needful Things, these stories are so unique. Just for a bit of information, uh, some of his best received, according to Rotten Tomatoes, Carrie is the highest rated at 93%, Stand By Me and The Shawshank Redemption at 91%, The Dead Zone at 90% and Misery at 89%. And some of the worst, uh, Firestarter was 38%, Children of the Corn was 36%, Needful Things 29%, Thinner was 15%, and The Tommyknockers, which was a TV movie, was 8%, mm. which is particularly bad. I mean, do you have a favourite? Well, Carrie is my favourite. Mm. But very close to that would be The Shining, although I don't necessarily think of that as a Stephen King adaptation because it just takes the bare bones of the book. Mm. And then Kubrick does his own thing. The other ones that I love are like Cujo, Christine, Stand By Me, Dolores Claiborne, and then the second tier would be the Green Mile Shawshank Pet Cemetery. Yeah, look, I agree with you on most of those. Carrie is my favourite, and in fact it's my favourite horror movie, as you know. And I think Brian De Palma can be total trash at times, but he's also made some absolute masterpieces, and, and Carrie is one of them. It's honestly a really simple story that is uh, turned into a really simple film. Um, but it is elevated with these kind of technical flourishes that just make it so different to anything else out there, which is kind of what De Palma was able to do throughout his early career, at least. And, I mean, I still watch in awe every time I see it at how technically perfect the movie is. I think it's a masterpiece, Carrie. And so moving. It is. And that's really unusual in horror films. You know, you don't just get the thrill of the viscera of horror. There is this real humanity that runs through the story. And it's ultimately heartbreaking, Carrie. Mm. Very much so. And memorable. Very memorable. And has another, well, has another two phenomenal performances in it. Mm. With um, Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie. Yeah. They're both just amazing. Yeah. I would agree with you on the next ones, The Shining and Stand By Me. And I mean... uh, I love Misery, obviously, I would put right up there as well. And another one that I love is The Dead Zone, uh, which is Cronenberg. Which I haven't seen. Uh, Do you have a least favourite adaptation? I really didn't like the recent Gerald's Game. Okay. I found the original TV movie of It unwatchable. I think I watched half an hour of it. Loved Tim Curry, but I just couldn't get into it. Ah. 
you know, I mean, I don't have any Stephen King films that I just absolutely hate it because he's so... Um, I mean, there's always something interesting in them. Mine would be Needful Things. Mm, so yeah, I've seen it, but I don't remember it. Uh, it had this all-star cast. It had Ed Harris, had Bonnie Bedelia, who'd just come off of the first two Die Hard movies and Presumed Innocent, had J.T. Walsh, who was in Misery. Do you know who he was? He was the guy that sold the typing paper. He was the um, state trooper who addresses the media when the car's found. I said he is the guy that sold the typing paper. (laughs) And uh, Max von Sydow. But the book, uh, which is my favourite Stephen King book, was this kind of multi-story ensemble slow burn that gradually reached reached this massive crescendo of violence. And that probably never lent itself to a movie adaptation. Uh, it would be better, much better these days where you could do a limited series on something like HBO where they could really explore all of the stories rather than kind of taking one, focusing on it and neglecting everything else. Yeah. Well, I mean, Stephen King, he took a long time to sell the rights to Misery. And I think there was also some reluctance to adapt it because it wasn't a traditional King novel and people weren't sure how it would translate. But obviously it translates incredibly well in the right hands. Uh, one thing that I think is interesting about Stephen King's non-supernatural stories is that the the big problem that we have, that any horror filmmaker has, is how do you sustain a violent story over 90 minutes or two hours? And the way that a lot of slasher movies or horror movies do it is by just having the characters make dumb choices. And that's how you prolong the horror Wolf Creek we love, right? But there is a scene in about, I don't know, 35 or 40 minutes into the movie where they have the killer on the ground, unconscious, and she has a shotgun. And instead of killing him or, or you know, tying him up or something sensible, they just leave him. And then he gets up and it goes on for another hour. Uh, and horror movies are rife with that sort of, you know, logic, which is really frustrating. To the point that it gets mocked in something like Zombieland where they specifically say you got to double tap, you got to shoot them twice. That's right. It's, it's such a such an inherent flaw. Yeah, and I mean, Scream and Scream Two kind of ingeniously make fun of it as well. When you know, there's that great moment where Sydney Prescott shoots Laurie Metcalf twice. Yeah, not just to be sure. Yeah, King gets around this by kind of always in his non supernatural stories, he just creates this conspiracy of circumstances that mean that he can then protract the horror. So in Cujo, we have, you know, an absentee husband, a sick dog, an isolated mechanic, his family on vacation, a car that breaks down at just the right moment. And then (laughs) all of this stuff happens at the right time on this weekend so that we can then trap the mother and child in the car with the dog with no chance of somebody coming to save them. And Misery is the same. We have a snowstorm, a car accident, an opportunistic obsessed fan, an upcoming book release, and an isolated farmhouse. So it's almost like these really, really unlucky conspiracy of circumstances just come together so that we can then pit Paul in this bed with the obsessed fan. It is, uh, and all of those circumstances taken individually are entirely plausible. They are. That's right. They are. And hey, shit happens in the world, you know, and sometimes everything that can go wrong does go wrong. So it's not it's not unrealistic. And it also means that King doesn't have to rely on the stupid protagonist trope to keep the horror going. Do you feel like Annie has lived in Silver Creek, Colorado for longer than Paul has been going there to finish his novels? I would say it would have been at least a decade. 
at least a decade, what? That she's lived there. And he's finished his last six novels there? Yeah. So do you think that's over a decade? Do you think she consciously made the choice to move to Silver Creek, Colorado? I think you would have to say yes. I think you would have to if you want to make it plausible, yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just highly unlikely. I was listening to a podcast that was discussing this movie as part of my research for this episode, and they were like, what an incredible coincidence. And I thought, well, I think that's probably a little unthought out to think it was a coincidence. I mean, if you really think about it, it's far more likely that she moved there because she knew that her favourite author goes there to finish his novels. And that, you know, it's not a coincidence that she found him because she was stalking him. Which also is another difference from the book, It's Not Explained. I I actually appreciate that they put that into the movie because it was, yes, it was stalking, but it was also uh, sometimes I I go there because I know you're there. And that's Something you could understand a fan doing. Is that, is that much different than a fan who goes to greet somebody at an airport or, yeah. or you know, go for a backstage meet and greet? You and know? if you look at stalker behaviour, the most common uh, behaviour is that they physically follow their victims. Mm. So, you know, that's, that vibes with what we know about stalking patterns. Now, a lot of uh, the story of Misery deals with the idea of cheating. Cheating a story for an outcome that you want uh, without getting there in a legitimate manner. And uh, there's the scene where Annie talks about the chapter plays that she went and saw and, you know, what she saw one week doesn't gel with what she saw the next week. Of course, she has an Annie-style tantrum there. But there's what I believe to be a massive cheat in this movie... Can you pick what I think it is? The cheat. No. I think the cheat is the sheriff noting the quote. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That is a bit crazy. But I can potentially explain that for you. Okay. So what if... Because, you know, that might have happened locally. We don't really know. It did because he, he gets it out of Denver. So maybe he, when he was reading the Misery novel, read that quote, which is a pretty uh, memorable quote. Maybe when he read that in the book, he thought and he said, I've read that somewhere. And, of course, where he read it was in the paper when Annie Wilkes was on trial for these series of baby deaths at the hospital. It makes perfect sense when you put it like that. Yeah. I know this, but I feel like it's just... A little too much. And I feel like it's probably not a particularly memorable quote. Do you know what I think would have been better? If he had been writing a page of quotes. Yeah. You know, the very fact that he has that one quote on that one tiny piece of paper and then that ends up being the clue that leads him to Annie. Yeah. It's like, oh, come on. I'm sorry, Paul. This is all wrong. What? You'll have to do it over again. It's not worthy of you. Throw it all out. Except for that part of naming the gravedigger after me. You can leave that in. I agree. I, look, that's, that's the bit that doesn't work for me in bringing Annie undone. I really like that the film has some repetition in it, though. Um, my favourite, of course, is when Paul lights his novel of misery, uh, sets his novel of misery alight and says, I learned it from you. Yeah. That's a really good quote. That, again, is just kind of another cheat to get, I guess, Annie down on her knees. It makes sense. Well, it's his plan, but and I, it works. Yeah, I'll agree with you that Misery, it, it contains a series of entirely plausible things that happen in an unlikely order in order to get started and then worse to proceed to its conclusion. Yeah. None of those things happening are impossible, but I think the key thing with this movie is that they are fun enough to make you keep watching. 
Yeah, and they are preferable to just having the character be stupid. Neither of the characters are stupid. No. Uh, I think Annie, one of her, one of the scenes that really speaks to how intelligent she is is how she handles the sheriff when he visits. Mm. Because she's not afraid to seem eccentric. And she says, oh, I'm going to try and be his successor and write, you know, like him. So therefore she's explaining the typing paper. She admits that God... She explains the spare bedroom as well in doing the same thing. And she admits that she hears the voice of God. So, you know, it's not like somebody who's trying to keep all of her um, eccentricities hidden. She, you know, but she comes across as somebody who's, yeah, she's a little odd, but she's probably harmless. Just a harmless, odd little lady. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think she, when she behaves that way, you think, wow, she's actually really smart and super narcissistic because she actually thinks she can get away with this if she just spins a bunch of bullshit. And she does. It's only because Paul, you know, knocks something over and the sheriff turns back that things spiral out of control. Yeah. Do you want to speak a bit more about Annie? I think we probably need to. I think she is the kind of key to this movie and i think anybody who walks away from this movie will understand why if you haven't seen it you know horror movies they always have kind of represented the other or the different and uh, anything we can't understand or categorize becomes evil something that threatens us is because it's beyond our understanding or our comprehension or our knowledge and mental illness has always been an easy way, easy target for this kind of representation. If we're not dealing in the supernatural, which is the case in Misery, then we have to deal with the scientific. And as unfortunate as it may be, we need to kind of work to classify Annie Wilkes. Um, it's been said that she has paranoia and depression and kind of most overtly bi- bipolar disorder. I mean, even if we don't classify, even if we choose to say, OK, well, there's something wrong with her, but we're not going to say it's a condition of the mind that we're aware of she becomes a psychopath or a sociopath um, which is essentially just the way of saying there's something scientifically wrong with her that we haven't yet pinpointed or don't care to but the movie kind of says those things about her as well dr reed malloy is the forensic psychologist who who has a a little special feature on the blu-ray and he says uh, he's also written a number of books on the psychology of stalking in particular he diagnoses her with just about everything i think Bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, schizoid, schizotypal, obsessive compulsive features, sadomasochism. And he says this is the typical representation of a celebrity stalker. Kaklara Moradian, who is an Iranian refugee who now specializes in the United States in the field of mental health, agrees with most of this diagnosis. She says um, Annie meets the schizotypal personality profile because she lives alone in a remote area. She doesn't have close friends. She enjoys the company of animals more than people. And I read that and I thought that sounds almost like me. Uh, While she agrees that there are traits of borderline personality disorder, she also recognises that Annie lacks that disorder's main trait, which is an intolerance for being alone, signified by a number of intense and unstable interpersonal relationships. I mean, do you have anything more to say about that? Well, I think that she really is like a tossed salad of mental problems. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, And I think that that's what makes her really an inconceivable creation. I think the only reason that we buy it is because Kathy Bates is such a naturalistic performer that she somehow kind of (laughs) grounds this totally inconceivable person. I mean, you would have to be so unlucky to have that many mental disorders all kind of vying for (laughs) precedence inside this head. 
I feel like King almost like unable to decide exactly what to make her. He just made her everything. He just threw it all into the mix. And she's like a composite of practically everything that can go wrong with the human mind. You know, you you mentioned most of them, but she also has like false moral standards. She has a narcissistic complex, which I've, which I've discussed. But it's interesting that people who have real mental disorders will often gravitate towards very conservative, moralistic values as a kind of veneer that will cover their problems, which, you know, they very often find difficult to control. So that's why I think we see Annie uh, adopting a very kind of religious um, sensibility. And uh, also, you know, we see that in her dress and in her unwillingness to swear and the fact that her home is so organized and rigidly composed and, you know, the part down her hair, hair through her hairline is so straight. And, you know, she's always very careful because these are all things that mentally unwell people do to try to cover the fact that they're actually grappling with, with these sorts of internal problems. Uh, and I, I think there's a lot of truth there, but it's almost, I mean, she's so crowded. And, you know, when you see other depictions of mental illness, like people like the, you know, the villain in Pacific Heights or sleeping with the enemy uh, or single white female, um, they're tempered. They're not like this amusement park of problems. You know, <laughs> they've got one or two problems. I feel in a way like Misery, it overdoes it a little bit with Annie. I mean, it's probably exacerbated a little bit because of the setting. Something like Single White Female takes place in a big city and it has a bigger cast. Uh, so, you know, there's there's more things to take your attention away. But when you're watching so kind of acutely these two people on screen, and I think that the film has a lot of technical facets which enhance the character of Annie Wilkes. I guess first and foremost there is Kathy Bates's performance, which is spectacular. But there's other reasons. I mean, Rob Reiner and uh, Barry Sonnenfeld was his cinematographer. They choose to shoot Annie mid-frame in most of her dialogue sequences. So she's right there, front and centre, and she's looking slightly past the camera each time. But she's there. Her, her head is taking up a lot of the frame. And this happens when she's happy, when she's celebrating Misery's return, for instance, or when she's angry. So we are immediately kind of unsure of where we stand when this shot begins. And since Annie kind of snaps so quickly and immediately, it's used as an effective surprise factor. But it heightens that kind of surprise as well, that kind of response that the audience has. Because it's so much closer. She's right in your face. One of my favourite shots is um, in the entire film is when she first shows Paul that she has a pistol and she's kind of, she's framed in the centre again, but she's looking off to the side and she's slightly turning her head and the lighting is very red and blue and it's almost romantic. And this is different than the kind of harsh, bright lighting that she has received in most of her scenes. She's usually lit very front on. But I think the change works in this scene because she's not happy and she's not angry. She's aware of how she's feeling, which is something that she's often not. That feeling, of course, is a deep depression. And since she's aware that she can't be happy, the only alternative is angry. And she would rather not feel that way right now either. So... In this scene, I feel like she's at her most controlled, even though mentally for a person suffering from depression, this is when somebody feels at their least in control. 
most of the time. But I really love the way that that scene is shot and framed. Annie, what is it? The rain. Sometimes it gives me the blues. When you first came here, I only loved the writer part of Paul Sheldon. But now I know I love the rest of him too. I know you don't love me. Don't say you do. You're a beautiful, brilliant, famous man of the world, and I'm not a movie star type. It's a great scene, and what's interesting about it is that the penny has dropped in that scene. She spends so much of the movie in a kind of fantasy world where she thinks that you know, Paul Sheldon genuinely loves her, that she's going to revive misery, that she's going to um, be the reason misery's alive and it's going to bring some sort of notoriety to her and some kind of value to her life. And all of these things are fantasies and they're not real. You know, Paul is terrified and fighting for his life. She is not going to revive misery. But in that scene, she's aware that he doesn't love her. It highlights something that maybe we don't think of until that scene, which is that Paul is really advantaged. He's good looking. He's from New York City. He's very sophisticated. And who is she? She's plain. She's plump. She's kind of mediocre. And, you know, really in life, that's true. There are these people that are advantaged and or have these advantages. And then there are others that ha- have no advantages. And it's so unfair. It's just so cruel. But it's not anyone's fault. It's just genetically, biologically, environmentally, the way things are. It's possible to pity her in that scene. I mean, I think sympathy is something that you feel for Annie at several times throughout the film, Mm. which may sound really strange to say, because she is a despicable person most of the time. She's done despicable things throughout her life. But I, I feel sympathy for her in that scene and in at least two others. Well, she really is a victim of her own psychopathology. And, you know, there's a part in the the scene where she says, you know, about him cheating to get Misery back alive. And she ends that rant by going, you know, He didn't get out of the cock-a-doody car! And then there's a few moments where Ryder lingers on her and you see her kind of blink and she looks really distressed. And you can tell that it's not only just because Paul's cheating, but because, which, by the way, she's right. I fucking hate when authors do that. But also because she's upset by the fact that she's just lost her cool again and she doesn't know why she can't just express a point lucidly and that really is sad some people can't do that they can't control their emotions and I think you do in several moments feel genuine sympathy for her another scene that's similar to that scene is where she's looking out the window and she's discussing you know when her husband died and how lonely she felt and when she worked night shifts and how misery saved her I think that that's another moment where you really feel this character's loneliness and isolation. The fact that her mental derangement has made her kind of a pariah, that she's never been able to form interpersonal relationships and that she's essentially hermited herself in this farmhouse because the world has rejected her. And then there's suddenly this influence in her house, in her life, that she's got to look after. And it's not just a stranger off the street, but it's a man who... She's had these delusions about for years and who has given her misery Chastain, who's become one of the most important, lasting relationships in her life. 
and that's going to destroy everything. It's going to just turn her house into chaos, and of course it does. I have this gun. Sometimes I think about using it. I better go now. I might put bullets in it. And there's a point uh, during the story where she realises that this is the end for her as well. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of like, why, why was it not the end when she killed her husband or her father or any of those children or those elderly people when she worked in the nursing home or the, mm-hmm. the maternity ward? Why was that not the end? Because this is the kind of crescendo of her life. This is the culmination of everything that's happened in her life, Paul Sheldon coming into her home. That's why this is the end for her. And when those things happened, she still had misery. It's like, okay, yeah, right now things are tough. I'm going to court or people are asking questions, but I can disappear into these books. Mm. But now that's coming to an end. It's sort of like that last thread that she was hanging on to is now slipping away. There's uh, the scene later on where Paul invites her to have dinner with him. And she puts on her makeup and she does her hair. She kind of puts curls in her hair and she wears a really pretty outfit and everything. And of course, Paul has laced her wine with Novril and is going to sedate her and then kill her and escape. And that plan goes awry because, of course, Annie knocks over her wine. And then she um, apologises. She apologises for ruining his celebratory dinner, which is, you know, almost romantic. It's like the first date that she ever would have been on, or at least has been on in many, many years. Man, I feel sorry for her. I know our sympathy is supposed to be with Paul, whose plan has failed, but my sympathy is with Annie. Well, she's so cute in that scene. Yeah. (laughs) She's like, I love when she says, you know, I would have jacked both legs to see which one was being pulled. Like, you know, she's just, she really does have that kind of country bumpkin charm about her and that kind of provincial good girl thing. She can switch it on and it's genuine. I mean, another scene where that kind of country bumpkin comes into play is when, and this is another scene where I feel sorry for her, and this is probably the saddest I get for her in the movie. Well, okay, it's the scene where Paul says he needs three things and she says Dom Perignon. Yeah. <laughs> and he she mispronounces he, it. Yeah, he looks almost kind of mockingly at her. Mm. Yes, Dom Perignon. And that's kind of the saddest thing because you look at her as this he looks at her as this kind of simple uneducated woman mm. which uh, she's not. I mean, she. It, it could be taken that she doesn't have the kind of world-wise ways of, you know, somebody who gets to drink Dom Perignon all the time. But she's not one-dimensional, and her psychoanalysis kind of tells you that. And I think that it's a, that's a really kind of sad sequence because it, it puts um, one character so far above the other. Well, yeah, I mean, we don't really excuse it, which is interesting because she's torturing him systematically. But, I mean, when he is mocking her for her not knowing about fancy things or being provincial, he comes across as a bit of a snob and it's not a very nice colour on him, even though what's happening to him is totally wrong. 
Resent her for like hobbling you. Don't resent her because she's just simple and, you know, has a simple life and, and uh, hasn't had the advantages and privileges that you've had. So obviously Annie uh, enjoys that Paul is subservient to her, just as she kind of enjoyed her patients, most of whom are now deceased, being subservient to her. She kind of had the power to either heal them back to full health or to assist them with dying. And she usually chose the latter. But she keeps Paul alive and. In doing so, she gets him addicted to painkillers, so his reliance upon her is therefore greater. And she then kind of punishes him for acting on this addiction by hobbling him, which again makes him even more reliant upon her. There's kind of the physical side of her manipulation, which is exactly that, but there's also this mental side of her manipulation. At the start of the movie, she strings Paul along by saying, yes, I'm going to call your agent, I'm going to call your daughter which she never has any intention of doing. She says, oh, once the phone lines are back up, and she says, once the roads are back open, I'll transport you to hospital, which she also has no no intention of doing. So she gets some time out of that and some kind of trust from Paul. I feel like you're speaking more about the book than the film. I don't feel like the film makes it really clear that he's addicted to painkillers. Less less so. Um, There's really only the scene where he goes looking for them. And I don't feel like she hobbles him because as punishment for his addiction. She hobbles him for going out. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Not because he's addicted to painkillers, though. Well, he's, he's, he's originally left the room to get the painkillers. To drug her, not to take them for himself. In the film. I guess that's the difference, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, in the book, it's far more apparent that he's addicted to these painkillers. Mm. In the movie, he actually actively kind of eschews the taking pain- the painkillers. No, he wants to stay lucid. Yeah. But there's a lot of mental manipulation. So, as I said, she tells him all these lies at the start. And she then kind of forces him to subjugate his greatest asset, which is his mind, by A, burning his new book, uh, when it's the only thing he's really ever been proud of, and B, forcing him to change the way he's writing Misery. So she kind of takes over control of that as well, takes over control of his mind in, in some ways. I feel like burning the book is kind of a symbolic amputation. You know, destroying somebody's product or somebody's art, that's really vicious in a way that's more vicious than the hobbling. For me, I I almost feel like the movie took out the amputation of the legs, but by burning the book, it creates this sort of symbolic amputation. I think the, the two, the kind of physical and the mental, meet in the hobbling scene. Uh, which is obviously the key scene, because she does this just grotesque act of physical violence and then follows it up by saying, God, I love you. Mm. And I just think that's such a perfect kind of meeting of those two worlds. Yeah, I mean, what she's doing by hobbling him is prolonging his dependency on her. And that is, is is an act of unification, because his dependency is the glue that keeps this relationship together. But, I mean, look, I don't think that the portrayal of mental illness in Misery is problematic. Do you? Only in the sense that I think it is over the top. Do you think that we're demonising bipolar disorder, for instance? I don't think we're putting it in a very flattering light. But I think the fact that it makes Annie a victim of it is fair. You know, we tend to think, oh, evil. You know, mental disorder, evil. And I feel like this film has a more complicated relationship with mental illness than that. I mean, don't you think that 
anybody who could do who could commit a murder has some kind of probably mental condition if you delve deep to commit murder you have to have um, an extreme lack of empathy which they describe as sociopathy which is a mental disorder so yes i think it's there's an absence of empathy there psychology today wrote that reinforcing and perpetuating negative stereotypes of people with mental illnesses as dangerous and unstable can cause real life harm People with mental illnesses are often discriminated against when it comes to housing, school and employment opportunities. They may face bullying and harassment and are sometimes ostracised by others who fail to understand their conditions and treatment. In fact, the US Surgeon General identified stigma against mental illness as a major barrier to our public health, causing many to needlessly suffer in silence rather than seek care. I think that's all very true. Mental health is probably the biggest taboo at the moment. And I can understand that this would be problematic in that sense if you're looking at the kind of depression and anxiety and certain other disorders that are commonplace. Mm. And if you decided to make those the keys to evil. But I think there's a difference between the people with these disorders and Annie Wilkes. If Annie had managed her bipolar disorder, she'd still be schizotypal. And if she'd managed her depression, she'd still have this need for control. And if she'd managed her OCD, then maybe she'd have hoarded less novel, but she'd still own that shotgun. So medication can go so far, but it still the personality type is going to have a big influence on the actions that somebody takes. And I don't think you can blame somebody... Sorry, that was probably going to come off wrong. I don't think that you can say this film demonises mental illness. Certainly Annie is the sufferer of mental illness, but she is so much more evil than that. I think the way that this film is not particularly sensitive to mental illness is the camera techniques used. Because they are all used to make her appear even more grotesque and horrifying. And that's one of my overall problems with this movie, is that I feel like, just if you take all of that out of it, purely as an audience member watching the film, I feel like there's an overuse of technique that makes the whole thing feel slightly unrealistic. But if you want to look at it from a more moralistic perspective, I think that the use of these low-angled shots and Dutch tilting and um, dolly zooms and everything, uh, they are demonising mental illness in a way. They're making it utterly terrifying. But these are standard camera techniques in any thriller or horror film. That's true, but the horror of misery has to do with mental illness, almost exclusively. The horror of misery comes in the actions of a psychotic fan. Yes. And and that's... I mean, he's not... He's not... Nobody involved with the... This film is saying all bipolar people, all people with bipolar disorder will act the way that Annie Wilkes acts. No, that's true. And I agree with that. But I just feel like... Look, I'm just running with the point you brought up, Damien, okay? and I'm doing this on the fly. But I, now that you've said it, I can kind of... That, that is the only way that I think the film probably isn't particularly sensitive to mental illness. I feel like Kathy Bates' performance is highly sensitive to it, mm. and she really does bring pathos and humanity to this character that could have, in other hands, just been totally evil and grotesque and monstrous. Yeah. I think that the fact that we feel pity for Kathy Bates, as we've talked about, sorry, for Annie Wilkes, as we've talked about, 
is testament to the fact that this film does not demonise mental illness and in fact it uses it as some kind of construct for the action that you see on screen but at the same time it gives it some kind of due reverence to say that there are there's a little bit of bad in everybody I mean Paul acknowledges a lot of his bad as well yeah and I mean you know Kathy Bates isn't just sad and terrifying she's also funny and she's sweet there are so many layers to this performance Mm -hmm. that make it uh, more than just about someone being completely overwhelmed by their sickness yeah um well, there's obviously there's been some movies more recently uh, that are kind of in the horror genre that maybe the pseudo horror genre that have a thoughtful depiction of mental illness, and I would say The Babadook and Take Shelter are two of those films mm. for me. So certainly, the depiction of mental illness in those movies, or, or The Babadook, is a little combination of that and grief, but. The depiction in those movies is is obviously far more sensitive than in Misery and and in pretty much any other movie. Yeah, I mean, even Taxi Driver, I feel like, is a far more thoughtful look at mental illness than Misery. Uh, I just want to bring up a name that will probably give you nightmares. Um, I think that maybe Carol J. Clover, who we talked about extensively during our Black Christmas episode a few weeks ago, would have had an absolute field day with Misery. Because Annie uses a knife, a hammer, a syringe, and two guns as her weapons of choice against Paul uh, and the sheriff, who are both male. She penetrates his body with the syringe on multiple occasions. She blows a hole through the sheriff and later Paul with her guns. And then she kind of castrates Paul with the hammer uh, by taking away his independence. So, you know, talk about phallic. Uh, Unfortunately... Or maybe not. Clover wrote her dissertation on those themes a year before this film was released. Well, I don't know. I read um, her... She does cite Misery right. in His Body Herself. Uh, maybe it was a re- revised maybe, version. Maybe that was um, in uh, another essay or something because Men, Women and Chainsaws she'd published in 1989 and His Body Herself she published in 92. But she did do an updated edition of her book. Right. Okay. Uh, and she does cite it. It's only in a footnote, but she describes Misery as an interesting reversal of the idea. And, you know, with Annie Wilkes or the female as the gender-confused uh, villain who tar- whose target of obsession and whose her murderous um, tendencies all happen to Paul, who is essentially like a final girl. Yeah. Uh, so, and she says that the film is an interesting reversal of that general horror trope. For more information on Carol Clover, please see our Black Christmas episode, <laughs> where we can't stop bringing her up. She's a really interesting film theorist. Yeah, also and film academic. Also, you know, painful at times. Controversial, provocative, but has really interesting ideas. Uh, some of which we don't agree with. I think quite a few of them now are outdated by contemporary film criticism. Mm. But she's definitely a very interesting and worthy voice in the uh, field of horror academia. I thought you were good, Paul, but you're not good. You're just another lying old dirty birdie, and I don't think I'd better be around you for a while. So the setting in this film obviously has an impact on viewership, this restricted point of view, this restricted setting as well, 
you're you're kind of in this bedroom with Paul Sheldon for most of the movie. He can barely move, and a lot of Annie's movements are unseen. The film takes a fair bit of creative license to give us different perspectives that were not in the novel. The novel is all told from Paul's point of view. Even, you know, that which is unseen is purely speculated in the novel through his thoughts. And that's probably why he had somewhat of a problem with it at the time, because absolutely everything, everything in the novel is in Paul's head. Well, it's in first person, isn't it? Yeah, so in, in Paul's head or from Paul's point of view. So in the movie, instead, we get the character of the sheriff, which takes us outside of the bedroom. And that kind of plot device also introduces us to other characters like Paul's literary agent, the media, other state troopers, the general store owner. And when we're back in Annie's house, the film doesn't deviate too much. We do get, I think, two shots that are outside of Paul's perspective. There's this one shot of Annie in her bedroom watching television, and then uh, we see her initial interaction or her entire interaction with the sheriff, which is when Paul is down in the basement. So apart from that, though, it stays very true to the novel, and particularly early on we're essentially stuck in the bedroom for large portions of the movie which puts us in very much i mean it has the effect of putting us in very much the same position that paul is in because when he begins exploring the house we begin exploring the house we kind of find out any secrets as he finds them out uh that's kind of why it's impactful when his freedom gets taken away from him in that hobbling scene because it gets essentially taken away from us too because it gets taken away from us too In any kind of horror or thriller movie, the unseen is always scarier than the scene. It's scary that we don't know what Annie is doing for large portions of the film. We don't know anything about her life. And it's terrifying when he first gets out of that room, starts looking around. You're kind of scared, but you're also really excited to see what else is there. The first indication that something is wrong is when she rants to Paul about the foul language in his latest manuscript. Okay, that's the first indication that there's anything wrong with Annie. Moments later, she drives off, and that's when we know there's something wrong with Annie because she drives past the sheriff and uh, he's out and about searching in the spot where Annie retrieved Paul's car. But what she does is she just keeps driving. Anybody who was had the best intentions would stop and say, hey, okay, I've got this guy here. Reiner and Sonnenfeld uh, and just quickly on Barry Sonnenfeld. He'd worked with the Coen brothers on Blood Simple and Raising Arizona. He'd worked with Rob Reiner on When Harry Met Sally. And he would later go on to direct The Addams Family and all three Men in Black movies. They, as I said, they choose to shoot tight in a lot of scenes. We get a lot of close-ups of Annie or Paul. Uh, We don't get many lingering wide shots of Paul's bedroom. Uh, And this kind of tightness in turn manipulates the suspense into, I guess, it has the effect of tightening around our throats. But that scene that I just spoke about, I think, is um, technically and stylistically, that's a really key scene for this movie because um, she drives past the sheriff and we start with this wide kind of point of view shot from Annie's perspective as she's approaching. And, you know, it's a wide shot. There they are in the distance. We're coming closer to them. As we come closer to them, we turn and we look at them from the side and then we continue turning and we're suddenly in this tight shot again of Annie's face. I've read time and time again about this film that any competent competent director could have done what Rob Reiner did with Misery and that is possibly true because there's nothing groundbreaking here 
but I still think he's kind of done a superb job speaking through his camera. I think so too. I think it's an unfair criticism. Okay, yeah, I, probably. You could, couldn't you say, make that criticism against anyone? Apart from the kind of absolute elite at that peak, yes, I think you could. Well, sure, anyone could theoretically do what anyone else does. <laughs> no one has special superhero powers. That means, oh, only they could do that. You know, it's sort of a bit of a redundant criticism. Ultimately, he does a wonderful job. The idea, obviously, of this movie is that it's a claustrophobic thriller. That's why we stay in the room. But I think Reiner does a lot so that we don't get fatigued. You know, he, there are endless inserts and extreme close-ups and dolly camera shots and inventive camera work. That shot that you're talking about is brilliant. I mean, we see kind of from a distance, we don't even know it's Annie's perspective initially, the sheriff. And then the camera zooms around. And so we've seen the solution, but it's far away and it's kind of leaving us. And then we turn and we see the threat. And it's this wonderful juxtaposition and um, the score. I think it's Mark Scheinman's score. How the, the music just goes, as we get to yeah. Kathy. But, and, you know, there's something just inherently thrilling and terrifying about that shot. I, I think one of the best shots in the film. Oh, easily. I mean, it's one of the most memorable for sure. Reiner's philosophy as a filmmaker is to, um, in terms of camera placement, is to give the audience the best seat in the house. And he does that. I mean, I, I don't ever feel in That's misery. That's really good. That is the first time I've ever heard that, and I love it. I yeah. love hearing it. He said it in um, the Screen Factory version of the Blu-ray in their interview. The other thing is that he had said to Kathy Bates, or they had worked out a story that she'd been abused as a child, possibly sexually abused as a child. I think that note is really important in kind of going back to what we said earlier about taking her out of just being kind of this incarnation of evil. And, and, you know, that's why we get those flickers of humanity and sadness and that she really is a victim of herself. And I think a lot of those sensibilities other directors would not have brought to misery. And perhaps critics who are kind of levelling these criticisms at Reiner aren't really thinking those things through. Reiner had a big impact on the key scene in this movie and anybody who's seen this movie knows the scene that we're going to talk about next which is the hobbling scene. It's, uh, you know, the one scene that is burned into the memory of viewers far more than any other when they see this film. It's pivotal to the film. Why do we respond to it? I think... The reason that it has become an iconic screen moment is because it was a graphic moment of body horror in a mainstream thriller. So I think for most audiences at the time who went to see Misery, they probably hadn't seen Cronenberg movies and Nightmare on Elm Street films. And and the film for most parts is about the threat of violence and psychological terror. It's not the kind of movie that's about gore and violence and body horror and it wouldn't have attracted the kind of audience that would go to see a movie like that so i think it is right on the line in terms of what is palatable for mainstream audiences and almost tips over the line there's a tremendous build to it you know where the scene's going paul is strapped down and drugged so you know unless like a paratrooper crashes through the roof this is gonna happen <laughs> uh also the scene has that um beethoven's moonlight sonata playing 
So that immediately is different. It's a different music cue than what we're used to. So we know, okay, something really full on is going to happen in this scene. So Reiner and um, Shyman kind of tip us off. This is going to be bad. It just seriously ups the ante. You know, up until then, Annie has represented the threat of violence, the potential for violence. But this is the first scene where she makes good on that threat. And so after that, we now know that, yeah, Paul really could die. I really could die because she really, really could kill him. I was surprised when I watched it that this scene is far less graphic than I thought it was. I thought it was a lot harder to watch. There's no blood and the kind of hobbling doesn't overstay its welcome. It shows one hit and that is done very quickly and his foot bending is then cut away from straight away and then the next foot that she hits is not shown at all. So, I mean, the scene's kind of impact comes from the fact that we're experiencing Paul's fear and we're scared of Annie's control. So since we're kind of, you know, in Paul's head, we shrink at her change of mood and her unreasonable expectations and her violent methods. And I think it's a combination. It comes at such a pivotal moment for the story because Paul's finally managed to get his freedom, get out of his room and go exploring. He now knows Annie's history. He knows where she keeps the drugs. He's hatched this plan to sedate her. He's stolen a knife that he intends to kill her with. So there's finally a way out of his torment. Mm. And it's ripped away from him in these two fell swoops of the sledgehammer. The reveal for this scene is really perfect because all of that setup is in our minds as we're watching it. But we kind of wake up in the dark with Paul, who's heavily sedated, as you say. And she reveals that she knows he knows. He's been out of his room. She has now found and taken his makeshift key. And she's aware that he knows her history. He kind of reaches for the knife, which she then pulls out from her dress and says... Is this what you're looking for? So his his face demonstrates this resignation that he feels and we feel as an audience. And this is where we also get your favourite quote in the movie, dare I say. Which is... My little ceramic penguin in the study always faces <laughs> due south. <laughs> um, There's so many good ones. That such a minute detail would be the giveaway for Annie to perform this massive stroke of violence is almost ironic. The scene, uh, I will note, also begins with Liberace's voice. Uh, and this is the same Liberace who Annie and uh, thought so happily that she was bonding over Paul with early on in the movie um, when she read that Misery was alive again. It's such a great day. Oh, I'm going to put on my Liberace records. Um, So it's another use of repetition, but this time that repetition has a different meaning. The other thing about it is that up until now, the violence that we've seen from Annie has been in the midst of a mood swing. Mm. Whereas this is very calm, it's That's very right. premeditated. It's, it is, it's, it's considered and it's careful and that is why it becomes so malicious. It's another side of Annie that we haven't seen. Um, it's sadomasochistic, you know, it's, um, and it's really thought out and so we just don't fucking know what's going to happen here. And like you said, it's just come after we've seen him practising to get the knife out of his sling, his arm sling. And so we can see what he's going to do. You know, he's going to just try and slash at her, disable her, and then try to find a way out of that house. And, I mean, he was resigned when she came home, stood in front of the door, and then kept going, and you could see he pulled out the knife and put it underneath them. 
the mattress at that point. He, so, his plan was thwarted at that point as well. Yeah, it ha- just has this incredible build, and then and then it happens, and whoa. And he forgot. Shh, darling. Trust me. God's sake. It's for the best. Eddie, please! Almost done. Just one more. God, I love you. Legend has it that George Roy Hill, who was the director of... uh, He won Best Director for The Sting in the early 70s. And he was also nominated for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which was written by William Goldman. He was originally attached to direct Misery. And I'm not sure how true that is, because there are reports saying that he was originally attached to direct it. And then there are the current day reports that say Stephen King would not allow anyone but Rob Reiner to direct it. So... Yeah, I'm not sure what the circumstances are there, but he apparently left the project, if if he was attached to the project, he left the project over this scene, and he's quoted to have said, I was up all night and I could just not hear myself saying action on that scene. Oh, what a sweet heart. <laughs> uh, and that was originally when it was the lopping scene where she takes an axe and cuts off his foot, Yeah, which was how it was in the novel. I don't really see how one is more or less horrific than the other. No, I think... Uh, I mean, I having just finished the novel Misery, I think they made the right choice for the film. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have wanted to see what was in the novel in the film. And not just because I'm squeamish, because I'm really not, no. but because I think the hobbling is more significant. I mean, I feel like we've seen amputations in movies before. Granted, not in these circumstances. Most amputations in movies happen because the person needs <laughs> needs it to live. Uh, but, I mean, I feel like the hobbling is, is really unique. And um, in that sense, it's more horrifying. I mean, to bring up Wolf Creek again, Wolf Creek 2 has a really kind of sickening amputation scene as well. When he's, Remember they're doing the quiz? Mm-hmm. And he cuts off his fingers. Yeah. Um, just just an awful thing to watch on screen, really. I mean, this is pretty awful to watch on screen as well. Well, yes. Let's move on a little bit uh, and uh, finish our discussion of misery with uh, a little bit of a talk about Stephen King. Um, he has said that... Um, a lot of, or it's been speculated that a lot of Stephen King is refle- reflected on screen in Misery. Do you have anything to say about that? Certainly, I think the idea of the relationship between celebrity and fan is is represented, and that's something that King has felt and experienced. Yeah, I mean, he has said that Annie Wilkes and the story of Misery is actually about his cocaine addiction, which he was battling at the time of writing it there are entire books king has written that he has no memory of writing because he was so kind of hopped up on cocaine that's insane isn't it yeah Yeah. when you i heard that there was once an intervention that his family held and they just dropped everything on the floor all of his drugs or something like that Mm. yeah but i feel like misery is sort of so simplistic and archetypal and how it's told that representations of annie are, you could say that she represents anything if we take the cocaine analogy we can see that it works you know when paul feeds annie like when he agrees to write misery or allows himself to be dependent upon her she's good to him and he experiences relief 
like taking the drug. When he resists her, like when you know, he kills off misery or he rejects the typing paper, he's in pain, like a man coming, going through withdrawals from his drug. She also acts as creative fuel for Paul, like when she pushes him past his inability to convincingly bring misery back to life. And of course, cocaine and inebriation can do that. It can kind of unlock doors for a writer. And um, she's also destructive to his body, like, a, like an addictive substance ultimately is. But for me, uh, yeah, okay, I guess that's sort of semi-interesting. I think the film's far more interesting to look at in terms of fan culture, which has become so ugly with social media. I think I said to you when Annie goes into, like, that big spiel about, about the plot mechanics of, you know... Her chapter plays? Yes. She reminded me of like the really emotional infighting you see on social media between fans who are, you know, disputing various plot mechanics or devices in their favourite cinematic universe or whatever. The thing about fans is that they don't want you to change too much from the original story, but they also don't want more of the same. So in, in, there's sort of this weird inability to please them because they don't want the same story, but they don't want a different story. Another Annie Wilkesism is call-out culture. You know, people are turning on celebrities so quickly now. A public person makes one single contentious remark and they're vilified online, suddenly they're losing sponsorship deals and movie roles. The minute there's any kind of change to Batman's costume or his powers or his gadgets, there's this wave of backlash. I feel like almost Annie Wilkes is this kind of walking avatar of an aggressive social media account. Even, like, I've been guilty of it. Like, my online persona is really just, like, the mentally ill version of me. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's probably true of everybody's social media persona, isn't it? I feel like online we are just all, we all turn into Annie Wilkes somehow. There's also this interesting interpretation of it. I'm going to um, quote this from a writer who is me. Annie is... (laughs) Annie is by no means a purveyor of the fine arts. She's like a simple girl with little knowledge of Paul Sheldon's Upper East Side stomping ground. Her life is comprised of ceramic ornaments, play clothes, daytime television, loneliness, and not least of all tacky romance novels. The Misery series attracts a certain type of female reader, one who revels in unrealistic fantasies about love and illusory notions of romance. For years, Paul has made money peddling these fantasies to women like this, but he doesn't want to be a sellout anymore. He wants to rediscover himself as a writer on the back of a series of books he believes are now beneath him. Annie Wilkes, the woman who gave Paul wealth, notoriety and security while she remained plain, unloved and unseen, challenges him like a battered consumer who's about to get cheated again. She made Paul Sheldon, so when he begins to withdraw, she threatens to unmake him, literally. In this sense, she is not only the fan Paul asked for, but the one he deserves. It's very true that, you know, it's a kind of similar argument to someone going up to a police officer and saying, do something, I pay your wages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. She has that possessiveness that fans have over the people that they love. And so suddenly they feel they have, or they're entitled to then dictate what that person does. I, I bought your book. I saw your movie. You know, and so therefore you now owe me. And that's what Annie does through this whole... She feels that she owns him. I found this uh, article written on Medium by a gentleman named James Katsunakis. Did you find that? No. 
He wrote, uh, In misery, Paul Sheldon ruminates on fan harassment via mail. These days, social media provides direct lines of immediate communication. If I wanted to tweet awful stuff to Stephen King right now, I absolutely could. This direct connection and the media's non-stop coverage of it amplifies all of this negative, toxic behaviour. Because of this, Annie Wilkes, originally an exaggerated stand-in for fandom, now seems an appropriate metaphor for toxic fandom in 2019. In a time where creators and actors are constantly leaving social media amidst hateful messages from supposed fans, where Star Wars movies are criticised for having a female lead, and where the trolling from online Marvel fans leads Rotten Tomatoes to change their policy about early reactions, it's easy to look at Annie Wilkes, a character written in 1987 before social media was even a thought, and view her as downright prophetic for the power that fandom now claims. One thing that I think is interesting about the relationship between Annie and Paul is how they're both kind of givers in life and of life and death to one another. So Annie describes first picking up Misery while she was working late shifts at the hospital soon after her husband had died. And multiple times she describes the Misery novels as having saved her. So in this sense, Paul kept Annie alive long before they even met. Then, of course, after Paul crashes his car, Annie keeps Paul alive. Conversely, Annie continually threatens to kill Paul. And, spoiler alert, Paul ultimately kills Annie. So there are these fascinating mirrored transactions of life giving and taking between these two characters that began long before they ever met. 30 years? Don't think we need a spoiler alert. (laughs) So obviously Stephen King, as I said at the start of this podcast, he said that Misery was a very personal project. To me, this sounds like something any author would say. But there does seem to be some basis in fact for this. He was actually planning to release the book under his pseudonym of Richard Bachman. But that pseudonym was uh, found out to be King prior to the book's completion, and so that idea was thwarted. His previous novel under that name was uh, only a few years earlier. It was Thinner from 1984, and this would have been his sixth book writing under that pseudonym. And as you said, there's so many different ideas about what Annie Wilkes and Misery represents. But Stephen King, in 1984, had written the fantasy novel Eyes of the Dragon, And it was poorly received by his fans, some of whom were just so, as we say now, toxic about it and the fact that he would choose to leave horror. So the metaphor is that King is writing horror novels for fans. That is echoed in Paul continuing to write the Misery novels, which seems like, you know, a far more obvious way of getting to where you get to the content of misery that may also be inspired by so many of those other things that you've spoken about, and particularly his drug addictions. So I think there's probably this conglomerate of events that have come to to be represented in misery, but I think that the name misery is is very pertinent. Yeah. Because <laughs> if he feels that way about all of these things, then misery is the perfect word for it. It's a strange name to give a... Oh, character, Victorian heroine, yeah. yeah. <laughs> As I said, I just finished reading the novel, which I did love. There's a lot of differences between them. Mostly it's very similar as any book and film are, but you kind of focus on the differences. Personally, I think filmmakers should have the ability to have this kind of creative license. I guess the, the key differences... Uh, In the book, Annie removes one of Paul's thumbs as uh, some kind of further torment, which I I have heard was filmed, but not included. I'm not sure if that's true. 
the sheriff is a big difference. In the book, Annie does not kill a sheriff. In fact, there is no sheriff. In the book, she kills a state trooper, and she does it not by blowing a shotgun hole through his body, but first by stabbing him with her cross. How ironic. And then driving over him with her ride-on industrial lawnmower. Uh, that's obviously far more ghastly, and there's a much bigger clean-up effort. You get the feeling if something like that had been included in this film, which that scene was shot, if something like that had been included in this film, it would have taken away from the other violence in the movie. In the book, Paul actually safely tucks away his latest misery novel, Under the Bed, and uh, it's a novel that he has come to be immensely proud of, and maybe he just can't bring himself to burn another book he spent so much time writing. So instead he places a pile of blank pages with only a printed title page on top of on the floor and burns that instead, whereas in the movie he burns the book he's just finished writing. And Annie's death is different. So in the book, Annie survives the attack on Paul. He locks her in the bedroom. He goes and gets more novel and he passes out. He hallucinates her several times. And the next day he wakes up as the police arrive. Annie has escaped. And uh, we later find out that she got out through the window and she went to the barn to fetch her chainsaw before succumbing to her head injuries and dying. I think fans of the novel will always debate whether a filmmaker has the right to make changes to a story, because after all, they weren't the source or the vision for the story in the first place. What do you think? Reading a book and watching a film are very different experiences. I mean, they're very different mediums. And so if you need to translate something from a novel so that it better fits the medium of film, then you must and also we want people, we want adaptations of books into film because some books have brilliant stories, but we also want our filmmakers to have some artistic freedom so that they can get kind of jazzed about the project and put something on the screen that's really unique and speaks to their artistic sensibilities. I think that Misery the Film captures the spirit of Misery the Novel, but takes some ideas and just kind of twists them a little to make them more cinematic, and that's great. Yeah, I think the big question would be to ask if any of the changes work against the story. And in Misery, I firmly believe they do not. None of the changes work against the story. In fact, some of them elevate the story. I think the character of the sheriff is really, really key to the movie's success, having him there. I think it's it's better that we get removed from Paul's head and it's better that we don't just have a cast of one-shot characters. We actually have this one character who's running throughout the movie as you say at least somebody's looking for paul even um lauren bacall as Marsha sinclair is a really great character because it tells us what world paul comes from whereas buster tells us what world annie comes from and so that's a really lovely juxtaposition mm. luke tell us about the uh, release and reception of misery well, it was, you know, received really well. It was released on 1,244 screens on the 30th of November 1990, a week before the release of Edward Scissorhands, and three weeks after what would become the year's highest grossing film, which was... I'm Alone. It made $10.1 million on its opening weekend and finished with $60 million, making it the 19th highest grossing film of that year. The hobbling scene quickly entered the zeitgeist and became a notable talking point amongst audiences, similar to the bunny-boiling scene in Fatal Attraction three years earlier. 
That's a good comparison. Reviews were reluctantly positive and focused mainly on Kathy Bates' performance. Roger Ebert rated it three out of four stars and praised Kathy Bates, but wrote, The result is good craftsmanship and a movie that works. It does not illuminate, challenge or inspire, but it works. Vincent Camby of the New York Times said, Annie is a great horror film character, but misery means to be more than a horror film. It seems to want to be a Hitchcockian kind of cat and mouse suspense melodrama, which demands a lot more ingenuity than Mr. Reiner or Mr. Goldman can muster. David Kerr of the Chicago Tribune wrote an interesting review in which he argued, and I'm paraphrasing, that the story is a clear allegory for the popular artist's relations with his public, which in this case seem to be severely strained. King seems to be characterising his audience as dangerous halfwits who keep him imprisoned in the same genre formulas while he yearns to create great literature. With the help of screenwriter William Goldman, King and Rayner have created a slightly less bilious version of Woody Allen's Stardust Memories, in which the word fan is essentially interchangeable with the phrase cretinous psycho. Misery turned Kathy Bates, who was an established stage actress, into a household name, and she won numerous accolades that year that culminated in the Oscar for Best Actress. The film itself appears on a number of Best Thrill horror lists and was parodied in a French and Saunders sketch. It also inspired a viral prank video in 2016, in which an Annie Wilkes lookalike accosts a sale person at Barnes & Noble who has never heard of Paul Sheldon or the Misery novels, which we loved. That video? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> we'll provide a link to that. Kathy Bates was uh, also, just recently, she was voted the top Best Actress Oscar winner of the 1990s um, by Gold Derby, which is a website which predicts Hollywood awards polls each year. Uh, she got 23% of the poll, and uh, just behind her were Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs, Jessica Lange in Blue Sky, Frances McDormand in Fargo, and Hilary Swank in Boys Don't Cry. Time for a quiz? Yes. You go first. Okay. <clears throat> first question. What were James Can's fake legs made out of during the hobbling scene? I just want to say, you have like this look of, I don't know, smugness on your face right now. <laughs> uh, James Can's fake legs were made out of... Uh, that stuff that you make boats out of. Starts with an A. Uh. They were made out of gelatin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I knew that. (laughs) Okay. When Misery was given a double bill cinema release in February 1991 prior to the Academy Awards, which also nominated film was it paired with? Oh, fuck off. Was it a horror film? You don't. It's not 20 questions. It's a quiz. I'll give you a hint. Nah. (laughs) Uh, 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 Edward hands. Postcards from the Edge. Uh-huh. Well, that's a sensible <laughs> pairing. <laughs> Isn't it weird? Misery was Barry Sonnenfeld's last film as cinematographer. What was his first film as a director? Oh, shit. Um, his first film as a director, I think, was the following year. So it wouldn't have been the Adams family, but man, I've forgotten. It was the Adams. Was family. it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought he. I thought he'd done one in '91, but that's a pretty good one to have straight out of the gate. Yeah, but I mean, the majority of what came after. Yeah, it's a shame. Director Rob Reiner cameos in Misery. Which character does he play? 
I don't remember seeing him. Does he play the pig? <laughs> the South Park might say yes. <laughs> I don't know. The helicopter pilot. Oh, okay. Wow, <laughs> never would have got that. Mark Scheiman, who did the score for Misery, was recently Oscar nominated for his score for which movie? Mary Poppins Returns. Oh my god, yes. Damn you. <laughs> He's actually had about six or seven Oscar nominations, I saw. Just ask me a question that I'm going to get right now. Uh, what are the two television shows that we see or hear Annie Wilkes watching? Love Connection. Yes. Is that one? Yes. It is. I don't know the other one. I get half a point for this. You give it up? Yes. Family Feud. Uh, okay. Ironically... She has neither love nor family. Damien. <laughs> um, that's it, you win. Because you're on a point and I'm on half a point and we ask three questions each. Are you only on half a point? Oh yeah, you are too. Wow. I've got one more question for you. Okay, I've got one more for you. In fact, one of my questions was about Crazy Chick flips out in Barnes & Noble. <laughs> so just quickly... That was shot as viral advertising, I found out, by the generic theatre in Norfolk, Virginia, who were putting on a stage production of Misery. And the play's director was given access to a Barnes & Noble store in order to film the completely scripted scene with full employee knowledge and a 60-40 ratio of planted actors and real customers. You can kind of feel that when you watch the video. But remember, you know, you just have this little bit of uncertainty. Because you do see people there that don't know what's going on. There's a woman who walks in with her kid and she just stands there, like, grasping her child in terror. Yeah, so apparently a lot of people... There's an interview with um, that I found online that I'll post a link to. Apparently uh, nobody really came up to her after it was all over. (laughs) (laughs) But it's been viewed somewhere between 40 and 50 million times, that video. She's so funny. So good. Uh, how many fake heads of Kathy Bates were created for the film? Four? Three. Oh, so close. <laughs> okay, uh, I've got one more. You should be able to get this, Luke, okay? So I'm putting the pressure on. The same tagline was used for both the book and the film. What was it? Paul Sheldon used to write for a living. Now he's writing to stay alive. Very good. <laughs> so what do you give the film out of five stars? I give it four. I think that it's the kind of film that when you watch as a teenager, it is just so thrilling and amazing and incorporates everything that is exciting and visceral about cinema. And it really did kind of like propel my love of cinema. But watching it now, I feel like it isn't as sedate as I want it to be and doesn't have as much breathing room as I want it to be, mainly because I think it's over-directed a little bit. But I do love the film. I think what ultimately lasts from it is Kathy Bates. Thank God that they cast her because she went on to have this incredible career and she's just one of those actresses that you and I just love. And I think for that reason alone, it's it's a, a worthwhile movie. And Kathy Bates has had this kind of um, introduction to younger viewers these days because she was on a couple of seasons of American Horror Story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know that she loves horror movies and that when she went in to get her face cast on, she won over all of the effects guys by quoting lines from Texas Chainsaw 2. <laughs> Two? She knew Were they the same her. crew? I don't know, but no. they obviously loved... Maybe they were, but they loved um, They loved horror movies and just the fact that this middle-aged woman came in and knew all the lines from this you know, sequel, they loved it. 
Um, I give. Uh, um, 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 <laughs> That's yeah. where we're at at the end no, of the very podcast. Fucking hilarious. <laughs> uh, I give the film what I'm going to call a generous four and a half stars. I still think it's probably one of the better psychological thrillers, and it's from a time when so many great psychological thrillers were being made. I think that, you know, even in the stalker subgenre, we had Fatal Attraction and Sleeping with the Enemy and Single White Female and Fear. And I think it's a really rich time for those movies. And I think that Misery fits in perfectly among the top of that heap, up there with Fatal Attraction. And also right now, I think it's a great time to revisit Misery. I think we chose a good time for it, basically. I think um, King is having just such a a resurgence on screen. Just in the last few years, we've seen adaptations of A Good Marriage, Gerald's Game, and 1922 for Netflix, the series 112263 starring James Franco, The Dark Tower, It, and later this year, It Chapter 2 in cinemas, and the television shows The Mist, Mr. Mercedes, and the King Universe-inspired Castle Rock. So you could argue that he's better than ever, or bigger than ever. Thank you so much for listening to our episode on Misery and please rate, review, follow, stalk, hobble us if you feel so inclined. Don't hobble us, that's going too far. Please don't even stalk us. We don't want any of our listeners to go to jail. (laughs) We don't have enough listeners for any of them to be incarcerated. We've already got one stalker and she already listens to the show. (laughs) So um, next month we are going to be profiling Peter Weir's 1975 Australian mystery drama Picnic at Hanging Rock. Ooh, very exciting. Yeah, so join us for that. It should be lots of fun. In the meantime, have a lovely day, week, month. See you later. You want it? You want it? Idiot! Idiot! You sick, twisted fuck!